Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Psalm 137, verse 1. Israel, God's chosen people, liberated from slavery in Egypt, taken through the wilderness and given the promised land, found themselves enslaved and exiled once again. The Babylonian Empire had overwhelmed them, conquered them, and burned Jerusalem and their holy temple where God dwelled with his people to the ground. And the people that survived the onslaught, the remnant that remained, were forcibly removed, taken, evicted from their homes, and brought into exile in Babylon. And so they sat by the rivers of Babylon, and they wept, and they wondered, what happened? We thought we were God's chosen people. Did God lie to us? Did God change his mind? Maybe the Babylonian God, Marduk, maybe he's more powerful than the God that we worshiped. What happened? And for 70 years, the survivors of Israel sat in a foreign land and they were forced to wrestle with these questions. And I think that they were dealing not just with a political crisis, not just a spiritual crisis, but a story crisis. They were dealing with a story crisis. See, because stories tell us who we are. They tell us where we're going. They take the huge variety of our experiences and our emotions, the events of our lives, and they gather them together and they give them meaning, coherence, direction. And when we share a story together, when we can tell the same story about our past and our present and our future, that makes us a community. A community is a people who share a story together. And the shared stories that we tell about ourselves determine who that we will be as a community. But in exile, Israel realized that the stories that they had told about themselves and about their God were way too small to be able to contain the complexity and the pain of the situation that they found themselves in. They needed to remember Zion so that they wouldn't forget who they were. But these simplistic, nostalgic memories, like Jason preached about last week, the stories that Israel had told themselves about how they were the heroes, they were the good guys, they were the holy ones, all the other nations were the heathen people. The stories that they told no longer seemed to hold up. And at this point, this point of a story crisis, of identity crisis, every single other ancient nation that Babylon conquered faded away. They were forgotten, lost to history, lost to memory, absorbed into Babylon, and they ceased to exist. But in one of the most unlikely turns in history, I think, that did not happen 
to Israel. Israel was not forgotten. They survived. They rebuilt. And today the people of God are alive and well, while even the once mighty Babylon is now just a footnote in our history books. So how did that happen? How did Israel survive its story crisis? This morning, I think we need to pay attention to how this happened, how Israel survived. Because I think that we're in a moment in our culture and in our nation and even within the church um, where we are also in the midst of a story crisis. We're in a moment of complexity and of pain that kind of feels like exile. And many of our simplistic stories that we have told about ourselves no longer seem to hold up. They're sounding a lot more hollow. Stories about our ability to control God's creation through our mighty technology. They're being challenged by a microscopic virus. Stories that we've told about how racial injustice is the thing in our past are being challenged by the present cries of pain of brothers and sisters of color. And when we turn on the news, we're bombarded by a constant campaign of story wars that are fighting for our unquestioned allegiance. It's all a frightening and a confusing place to be. So let's ask again, how did Israel survive exile in its crisis of story? Well, the answer and the thing I want us to see this morning is that Israel survived because they learned how to tell a more true story about themselves and about God. They learned how to tell a more true story about themselves and about God. They learned to tell the truth about their history, about who they'd been. And they learned to tell the truth about a God who was much bigger than they had previously imagined. Now, today's reading from Nehemiah chapter 9 Um, is actually a key moment in the storytelling project that Israel goes through. And Nehemiah is a book that we don't really talk about very much. It's one of the less worn sections of our Bible usually. But I really believe that it's a relevant book for our time because Nehemiah tells the story of how Israel moved beyond exile to become a people with a future. See, after a generation of Jewish exile, Babylon was actually conquered by Persia. And the Persian king allowed many of the Jews to return back home to Israel and begin to rebuild. And Nehemiah, the the one who is the main character in the book that we're looking at this morning, was an elite Jew, is an aristocratic Jew, who was actually serving as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. Um, And if you've ever seen the movie 300, Artaxerxes makes an appearance. Um, Nehemiah was cupbearer to him. Um, But when Nehemiah hears a report that his brothers and sisters back in Israel who are trying to rebuild are struggling, that they are suffering, he is just torn to shreds. And he decides that he needs to leave his position of privilege and comfort and go back home. And he begins to lead the reconstruction effort himself. But when Nehemiah gets there, he gets back to Israel, he finds that there are a lot of challenges. They're external challenges. The surrounding nations are starting to feel pretty threatened by the fact that Israel is rebuilding, is reconstructing, and they send raiding parties to come attack the building crews. 
But Nehemiah also realizes that there are even more internal challenges to the project of rebuilding. Many Israelites were too afraid to join the rebuild because of the danger. Some were trying to decrease the tension with the people around them by marrying the surrounding peoples and worshiping their idols. Some people looked around at the piles of rubble strewn everywhere, and they just gave up. One of the first reports Nehemiah receives says this, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And if that weren't enough, wealthy members of Israel were beginning to act just like their oppressors and were beginning to enslave their poor brothers and sisters through practices like predatory lending. So Nehemiah looks around at all of this, the chaos outside, the chaos inside, and he begins to realize, I think, that it's not enough to simply rebuild the physical walls of Jerusalem. He realizes that if they don't address the things that led them into exile in the first place, they will be doomed to repeat their mistakes again and again. Rebuilding the walls won't make the people inside them the light to the nations that they were called to be. They need to rebuild not just the city, but their character as a community. And that means that they need to tell a better story. And that's where Nehemiah chapter 9 picks up. So Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, they gather together all the survivors of Israel. They're all gathered together in a massive crowd. And listen to what they do in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says that the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Israel's process of rebuilding, of telling a more true story about themselves and about God is one of confession and of worship. First confession, or first worship, excuse me. It says that when the Israelites gathered, they separated themselves from the surrounding nations. And this isn't about xenophobia or them hating other people. It's about worship. The Israelites have to gather together as the people of God of Yahweh, of the creator who called them out of the world and made them a people in the first place. Before the storytelling can begin, the people are commanded in verse five to stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Because the story that they need to tell is not simply a political act or a neutral historical account. It's not virtue signaling or image management. It's an act of worship directed to their God. But it's also an act of confession. It says that they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. The story that they tell is a heartfelt prayer of confession to the God of Israel. They don't start by trying to change everyone else's stories out there. They realize that there are some things about their own story that they need to name and to change first. 
And it's clear, it's, you know, it might be counterintuitive to us today, but it says that they confess not only their sins, but those of their ancestors as well. And I want to talk about this for a second, because this can be kind of hard to get our minds around. I mean, how can I be held accountable for the sins of those who came before me? But the reason I think this doesn't make sense to us is because we've inherited some unfortunate biases as modern people, specifically about identity and sin. When it comes to identity, see, we today assume that, first of all, we're individuals. And then we just happen to voluntarily associate with various groups as we see fit. But scripture teaches us that we are inextricably bound together with those around us from the very beginning. We can't understand who we are apart from the families and the communities of which we're a part. And for us as Christians, like the ancient people of God, the primary community that we are bound together with is the church. And that's, that's actually why just now when we prayed our prayer of confession, we said, we confess, not I confess. And when it comes to our view of sin, I think today that we typically think in simple categories of guilt or innocence. But in scripture, the big problem with sin is not just that it makes us guilty, but that it deals death to others and ourselves. Slavery, for example, is evil, not just because participating in it makes us guilty before God, but because it deals death to those in bondage. And so if we begin to understand that who we are is bound up with those around us, and that sin is something that doesn't just make us guilty, but brings death into God's world, then our question changes. And it becomes not, how can I be at fault for something that someone else did? But rather, how do we as a people both feel the effects and repeat the patterns of the sins of our ancestors? This is a very important question. And the only way to answer it is by truthful storytelling about where we've come from. And so that's exactly what Israel begins to do. Gathered together as the people of God in worship and in confession, they begin to tell the true story, the whole story about their past, the story that they learned how to tell during their time in exile. They begin all the way at the beginning in verse 6 with joyful stories about how God created the earth, called Abraham, liberated Israel, gave them the promised land. But then we come to verse 16, where this morning's reading began. And here the story turns. Here they start to say, But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. After the painful experience of exile, Israel was finally ready to tell the truth that their history was not primarily one about victory and triumph and their own faithfulness the nostalgic story about their own greatness that they once believed was true was not the story they were telling anymore. Theirs was a story of arrogance, of rebellion, forgetfulness of God's provision, and a preference for slavery over deliverance. 
this is a painful story to tell. I mean, you hear it and you might think like, what good could come from all of this negativity? But here's the thing. It's the untold stories that often do us the most harm. We avoid the painful stories about our past because it seems too painful to deal with. We want to focus on the positive and just stay there. But we know that in our individual lives, you're refusing to name to name and to address the past stories of pain and of hurt and of failure in our life, refusing to go there, it actually causes more pain in the long run. It keeps the wound from ever being able to heal. But God promises us that when we confess our sins, when we bring them into the light, that is when they are robbed of their power. And the same goes for us, not just as individuals, but as a community. This summer, I've had the privilege of helping out with a growth series class here at Redeemer on the gospel and racial justice. And we've been reading and discussing a book called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And the book essentially is a project of truthful storytelling. It tells the painful story about the American church's complicity and sometimes leading role in race-based slavery and racial injustice over the past 400 years. It's been a hard book to read and to talk about. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. But as I was reading and sitting in the book of Nehemiah this past month, I couldn't help but start to see parallels between what Nehemiah is doing and what Tisby is trying to do in this book. And it would be easy to write Tisby's book off as overly negative or, or harsh, but I believe that his hope in writing, and I know that our hope in this class is that by telling these stories that have often been ignored or avoided or actively suppressed, that then healing can actually begin. And in that sense, Tisby helping us to, to name and to confess our sins and the sins of our American church's ancestors, and, and in that sense, Nehemiah, leading the people of God to confess both their sins and the sins of their ancestors, it's not an exercise in negativity or shame. It's an exercise in hope. And this is what I want you all to leave with today, that we can have the courage to tell the truth about ourselves, about our sin and our failure, both individually and corporately, because of our very particular hope. See, the story of Israel did not end with their failure. Yes, they rebelled against God again and again and again. But if you keep reading in verse 17, they go on. They say, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. Israel was alive to tell the truth about their failure because they had been preserved through exile by the grace of forgiveness, and kindness of God. In fact, you might say that they'd been resurrected. The reason, brothers and sisters, that we can tell the truth about ourselves and our past 
is that we have a God who raises the dead. There is nothing in our past or present that is too dead for God to resurrect. If we didn't have that hope, then maybe it might be too painful to talk about it. Maybe then we might be, like the Israelites, too afraid of the danger, too overwhelmed by the rubble around us that we see. But God can clear away the rubble just as easily as he cleared away the door of the tomb. So let us walk out, join him in the light. I pray, church, that we would have the courage to tell the hard truths, to name the places in in our lives and in our community that feel dead, that are painful to talk about. And I pray that we would have the courage to tell a more true story about ourselves and about our God, because we have a God who raises even the dead. For as Paul says, with Paul, I'm also convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.